I'll never forget the time I flew on a Boeing 777 for the first time. How many of you ever flown on a 777? An absolutely unbelievable experience. So I uh, boarded in Seattle and made, uh, we made our way to Frankfurt, Germany, and ultimately bound for, you got it, the Republic of Belarus. And as I sat on this, this massive airplane, the thought crossed my mind, I wonder if the pilot will be able to get this thing in the air. And so that kind of was flowing through my fear-filled mind, surprise, surprise. And so we, we got on the runway and, and got the clearance from air traffic control to begin. And we began to barrel down that runway and we picked up speed and picked up speed. And how many of you know what I'm talking about? You're like... We're going to run out of runway. And we just kept going and going and going. And finally, we began our ascent into the air. And I know I wasn't the only one that felt that. The last several months, indeed the last couple of years at Christ Fellowship, it's been like we've been barreling down the runway. With the initiation, with the establishment of these ministry action teams, we're in the air. It's a very exciting time in the life of our church family. We're looking forward to the fall when uh, some people who have been gone will be with us once again. Vacations are over. The momentum is finally here and here to stay. I want to pray before we open up God's word. We thank you, Father, for the momentum that we're experiencing now as a church family. We thank you for uh, all the ministry action team leaders who have stepped up to the plate. And we not only commit them to you, but the teams that will be in place in a few short weeks. Help them as they plan. Help them as they prepare. Help them as they uh, begin to establish uh, short-range goals and long-range goals, all for the glory of God uh, and the fulfillment of the mission before us to, to make disciples of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, these are exciting times. Help us to be faithful as we put our hand to the plow. All for uh, your great name's sake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it was several years ago that a good friend of mine said something to me that I will not soon forget. He said this, The two most important things in life are one's relationship with God and one's relationship with people. You know, the late Howard Hendricks, the longtime professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, he tells a story of a billionaire that he knew who confided in him after losing uh, four kids as well as his fourth wife, if you can imagine. Here's what the Dallas billionaire said. He said, I spent my entire life climbing the ladder of success only to get to the top and to discover that the ladder was leaning against the wrong wall. I wonder this morning, wherever you are in life, whether you're a 17 or 37 or 87, is your ladder leaning against the wrong wall? Have your priorities dictated a certain kind of a, a lifestyle that marginalizes the most important things in your life? Namely, your relationships with your family members and other people, and your relationship with the living God. Could it be, perhaps, on this day in July of 2015 that you need to bring your needs, all of your needs, to the foot of the cross and present your needs to the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the title of the message this morning is simply put, Helped by 
God. And I trust that each one here at Christ Fellowship this morning will be helped by God as we take a close look and we see how the Lord Jesus Christ helped people in this particular passage in God's Word. I want to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. John, chapter 11. Would you stand with me as we read His Word together, starting in verse 1, and we'll make our way through verse 16. This is the authoritative, inerrant, infallible, eternal Word of God. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped her feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go to to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking a rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go that we may die with him. You may be seated and may God bless the reading of his word. Now, before we dig deeply into the passage this morning in John chapter 11, I want to make sure that we get our our bearings straight, our geographical bearings, our historical bearings, our biblical bearings, and even our theological bearings. We need to get all these things straight to make sure we proceed in a, a prudent and a biblical manner. Now, in John chapter 10, you will remember from last week, The Lord Jesus Christ really, in so many words, describes the defining marks of a person who believes. He describes the defining marks of a person who who has personal trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what we learned. Those who believe are, first of all, part of God's flock. They are, moreover, predestined by God. Those who believe are predisposed to listen to God. They are passionately loved by God. They are prompted to follow God. And finally, we learn that they are preserved by God. And so last week, I challenged you to be humbled, to be humbled by these different reasons for belief. Simply put, these theological realities should cause each of us to marvel, to be astounded, 
at the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. For instance, the doctrine of election, as I mentioned last week, a doctrine that is, is scorned and hated by even people in the church all around the world, the doctrine of election should not cause us to be chagrined. The doctrine of election should cause us to rejoice. For apart from the doctrine of election, none of us would ever believe. It it astounds me when someone who claims to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ resists the doctrine of election when all along, were it not for election, I would go to hell. I would go to hell. Additionally, we should be astounded at the, the love that God has for all his elect in eternity past. That his great love has drawn us to himself and such a love should cause our mouths to drop and hit the floor. And the fact that Christ's followers are prompted to follow God should prompt a never ceasing praise. The promise of salvation and the Savior who preserves this salvation should utterly astound us. Remember this, that if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, no circumstance, no act of free will, no demon in hell, nothing in all of God's creation can separate you from the love of God. You are eternally secure. Additionally, last week we learned that Not everyone responds to these great theological realities with God-centered praise. You'll remember that when the Jewish leaders heard Jesus' explanation for why some people believe, they were not humbled, they were horrified. They did not worship, they did not... They were not prompted to praise his holy name. Rather, John chapter 10, 31 summarizes the attitude of the Jews. Remember all that's happening. Jesus spells out five reasons why his people believe, which should lead us to rejoicing, should lead us to praise, should cause us to be humble, should bring us to our knees in adoration of the Lord Jesus Christ. And John 10, 31 says the Jewish leaders made preparations to stone him. Instead of of humbly bowing at the feet of Jesus, they bowed down to pick up rocks and they prepared to murder him. Verse 40 of John chapter 10 tells us how Jesus responds. It's very interesting. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't rationalize his teaching. He splits. He leaves. And the Bible tells us very plainly that he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. Would you hold your finger in John chapter 11 and go back with me to the beginning of John's gospel in John chapter 1. And again, getting our our biblical and geographical boundaries straight at this point. In John chapter 1, verse 28, here's what we read. These things took place in Bethany, across from Jordan, where John was baptizing. Here's what's happening. Is Jesus is in this region. He's in the Jerusalem region, which is west, you see, of the Dead Sea. And when the Jewish leaders pick up stones and make preparations to stone him, he says, we're out of here. And so he and his disciples make their way north, at least 60 miles north, to the region of Bethany, which is beyond the Jordan. 
So they make their way up there, and that's where we find him now in John chapter 11. This is where Jesus will prepare to perform the seventh of the last miracles in the gospel as he raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, there's something we need to get straight in our minds here as we get our geographical boundaries straight. The Bible tells us that Lazarus was from the region of Bethany. He was actually, the Bible calls it from the village of Bethany. Does anyone see what the problem is here? Jesus made his way with the disciples to Bethany, which is beyond the Jordan. There's two Bethanies. There's two Bethanies. And so you'll run into people from time to time and they say, ah, I found a contradiction in Scripture. If there's a Portland, Oregon, who's with me? There certainly can't be a Portland, Maine. Well, guess what? There is a Portland, Maine. And just like we see that there is a a region referred to as Bethany beyond the Jordan, so too there is a region that is not listed on this map that is called the Village of Bethany, which is 1.5 miles east of Jerusalem. So it's a, a short walk, less than 20 minutes away from Jerusalem. It is located on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. And you can see where that is situated, again, just west of the Dead Sea. Now, the name Lazarus, as you see that Mary and Martha have come to the point where they see their their brother Lazarus is ill, and so they send for help. The name Lazarus is a shortened form of the name Eleazar, which means helped by God. And don't you think that that is a very appropriate name for the man who would breathe his last, be dead for four days, as we will soon discover. And then Jesus of Nazareth shows up and says, Lazarus, come forth. Here is the man who at birth, his parents gave him the name Lazarus, which means helped by God. But Lazarus, you see, was not the only character in this story who would be helped by God. The other characters in the story would be helped by God as well. And so that is really the basis of our message this morning. I want you to see in a very practical way how the Lord Jesus Christ helps his followers. Look with me first and notice the first way that Jesus helps these Christ followers. The first thing we see is that he strengthens their faith. He strengthens their faith. Look with me at John chapter 11, verses 1 to 3. Now again, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. And so the sisters sent to him, that is Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, I want you to see in these very few verses, very quickly, the faith of Mary and Martha. And there's several things that emerge. I want you to see, first of all, that the faith of Mary and Martha was a humble faith. This is set in opposition to the Jewish leaders who claim to have faith in Jesus in John chapter 10. But when they hear the five reasons that Jesus says, this is why my sheep believe, instead of worshiping, they bend down to pick up stones to kill him. 
The faith in Mary and Martha, we see that they have a humble faith. It was Mary, you will recall, as we learn here in verse 2, is the one who anointed the Lord Jesus Christ with ointment. Now, John in his gospel here assumes now that the readers have heard about Mary's humble act, which he has yet to record in writing in John chapter 12. And so I want you to see that these sisters have a very basic, humble faith in Jesus. Notice also, it was an expectant faith. It was an expectant faith. Here we see the sisters come with great anticipation. When their brother whom they love a great deal gets sick, what do they do? They send a messenger from the Jerusalem region in the village of Bethany north to find the Lord Jesus Christ. And they say, we want to send this messenger, tell the Lord Jesus Christ that Lazarus is ill. Why do they have an expectant faith? This was not just a message as an end in itself. They were trusting, not just hoping, but trusting that the Savior would come and heal their brother. Now, as we think about an expectant faith, I want you to recall the very important words in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I learned that verse as a young child in the King James. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Verse 6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And so what do Mary and Martha do? They have a a humble faith. They have an expectant faith. They expect that as the message goes out to the northern region, that Jesus would receive the message, that he would immediately make his way back south to the village of Bethany, and they expected that the Lord Jesus Christ would heal their brother. I want you to see also that they had a dependent faith. A dependent faith. You see, Mary and Martha relied on Jesus. That is to say, they trusted Jesus. This is trusting Jesus in a biblical sense, in a God-centered sense. They refused to bank anything on their own ingenuity, talents, or resources. Rather, they relied on Jesus of Nazareth to meet their needs. And then finally, one that is very general that I want you to see is that Mary and Martha had a simple faith. It was a simple faith. They brought a simple, straightforward request to the Lord Jesus Christ. They, they simply, you could say it this way, they, they uttered a prayer request. Much like you utter a prayer request that says, Lord, would you bring a wife into my life? Would you bring a husband into my life? Would you show me what school to go to? Would you show me what career I should pursue? Would you show me where on the mission field you would send me? Would you show me if the mission field is actually right here in Whatcom County? I hope this morning that the faith in these three verses that is demonstrated by these sisters, that you find it extremely refreshing. I pray that their faith is is an example to you. I pray their faith inspires you. 
This weekend I've been reading a new book that will be released um, in a few short weeks, I believe, called The Colson Way. Many of you are familiar with Charles Colson and the legacy that he left. And this book is a, a book that, that, that lifts up the faith of Chuck Colson and reminds us that we must make our way in the marketplace of ideas. That we must speak up in the marketplace of ideas. That we must enter this marketplace of ideas and be bold for the great namesake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, Chuck Colson was a man who did just that. I'm reminded of Colson's faith when I think about the faith of Mary and Martha. And so the next time you experience a grueling trial, or if you're going through a grueling trial right now, I would urge you to remember this, this simple, dependent, God-centered faith that we find in Mary and Martha. The next time you experience sickness or the next time you stare death in the face, would you remember the faith of Mary and Martha? Now, one of the things that I love about the Bible is that God tells the truth about everyone. You see, we don't find any, any idyllic figures in Scripture. We don't find a perfect person in Scripture outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. All the other characters we find are filled with flaws and foibles and mess-ups, right? And so here we've been articulating the, the four very basic kinds of faith that we see in Mary and Martha. However, I want you to see that their faith doesn't end there. And this is something we will examine next week in greater detail. I want you to see that the faith of Mary and Martha is also a frail faith. It is a frail faith. And if you look forward with me in John chapter 11, verse 21, you will see that frail faith in action. Now, anyone who has read the Bible for any amount of time knows, as I've already indicated, that Lazarus actually did die. He died. And in verse 21, after there had been a, a brief interlude, and we'll see what happened there as Jesus waited an additional two days in the northern town of Bethany, we read these words. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had only shown up, Lord, if you would have come quicker, he wouldn't have died. You know what that's called? That's called frail faith. And so while their faith initially was a, a humble faith, while it was a, a dependent faith, a trusting faith, a simple faith, we see that Martha here is struggling <laughs> with her faith. She struggles with her faith. And so the next time you struggle with a frail faith, and I won't ask for a raise of hands because if I ask, how many of you have a frail faith, we could, we could automatically assume that all of our hands, our left hand and our right hand would go up because you and I all have a faith that is frail like Martha as well as Mary. And so the next time you struggle with that kind of a frail faith, remember these godly women, these godly women who struggled just like you and I. They struggled with the sin of unbelief. Well, Jesus not only strengthens the faith of Mary and Martha, his goal is to strengthen the faith of the disciples. And I want you to see where their faith lies at this point. In verse 8, the disciples said to Jesus, Rabbi, the Jews 
We're just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? And so as we talk about the faith of the disciples, recognize that the disciples are questioning the motives of the Lord Jesus Christ here. They are questioning the strategy of Jesus. Let's go to the next slide there, Amy Jo. And we see here that the faith of the disciples is not only filled with unbelief as they question his motives and his strategy, it is also a frail faith. In verse 15, Jesus said, And for your sake I'm glad that I was not there. That is in the village of Bethany where Lazarus died, so that you may believe. The disciples' faith was a fearful faith. The disciples' faith was a frail faith. And at this point, I would urge you to remember that every Christ follower is in process. All of us are in process. Our faith is an upward climb to the celestial city. Some of us this morning have a faith that is like Mary and Martha. It is humble and expectant and dependent and simple. Yet like Mary and Martha, from time to time, our faith becomes frail. And it must be strengthened on a daily basis. Some of us, however, are more like the disciples. Our faith is a a fear-filled faith. We struggle to be satisfied with all that God is for us in Christ. And each of us, like Mary and Martha and the disciples, is a work in progress. None of us have arrived. And so our faith, you see, is an imperfect faith. Here's a principle to remember. This is a principle to run to the bank with. And the principle is this. No matter where we find ourselves in the Christian pilgrimage, it doesn't matter if you are a brand new believer or Billy Graham in your late 90s. It doesn't matter if you're a teenager who's walked with Jesus for the last few years or you're in your mid-50s and you've been walking with Jesus for 30 or 40 years. No matter where we find ourselves on the Christian pilgrimage, Each of us has a need for Jesus to strengthen our faith. Jesus understands. Jesus is well aware of our imperfect faith. And aren't you glad that our Savior is patient with our imperfect faith? That he intends that our faith would, in the final analysis, be complete. He intends, as he said to the the disciples in verse 15, that we would believe that we would trust in him and cling to him that we would obey him on a daily basis paul says this in philippians 1 6 that i am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of christ is that an unbelievable reality that on july 4th 1976 when i trusted christ as a little kid in my bedroom seven years old and my christian life has been something like this it's been this upward climb to the celestial city up and down and up and down and struggling with fear and anxiety and sanctification and moving forward to the celestial city does that sound like it characterizes your life you say no i'm upwardly mobile i'm i'm one step away from the celestial city no no no. we are all in progress and we know that that good work that jesus began he will most certainly complete it 
I want to say once again, the doctrine of perseverance of the saints is not a second tier doctrine. It is not a a doctrine that we quibble with. It is a doctrine that we embrace. And I hasten to add that if, if there is anyone who rejects the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, they are at war with the living God. Because Jesus promises that he will complete the good work that he started. And so the first thing that Jesus does for his Christ followers in this passage is he strengthens their faith. There's a second thing that happens. He also instills hope. He instills hope. And I would have you look with me at verse 4. When Jesus heard this, now again, he's in the region of Bethany, north of Jerusalem, north of the village of Bethany where Lazarus would die. He instills hope now by offering divine perspective verse 4 says when jesus heard it he said this illness does not lead to death it is for the glory of god so that the son of god may be glorified through it and so it's divine perspective that he offers here jesus does not mean that the illness will not literally lead to death because we know apart from the return of christ we will all someone help me you're with me we'll die we're all gonna die Barring the return of Jesus. Rather, he means here that death is not the final chapter. Death is not the the end of the game, if you will. In the final analysis, God will use death and he will be glorified through it. The divine perspective that Jesus offers here for each of us is a perspective with an eye on eternity. That is to say, Jesus is reminding his followers, we must think eternally. Let me give you an idea of what I mean by this. Last week, I shared with you that my good friend Don went to be with the Lord. And many of you have had friends over the last several days or weeks or months or the last year who had friends who went to be with the Lord. And speaking of Christians... And you utter these words, I'm so sad. See if, if you're thinking like me. You're so sad because I'll never see him again. And then if you're thinking with a Christian worldview, right about the time you say again, you say to yourself, wait a minute. I will see him again. Why? Because death is not the final chapter that God will use death and be glorified in it. You see, death is only the beginning. Many of you are familiar with D.L. Moody, the founder of Moody Bible Institute. He was a man who was very fond of cultivating an eternal perspective. And he said this, <laughs> you're going to love this. Someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't believe a word of it. He says, at that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher, that is all, out of this old clay tenement into a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint. I was born in the flesh in 1837. I was born in the spirit in 1856. That which is born of the flesh may die. And it did. That which is born of the spirit will live forever. You see, the word of God reminds us to cultivate an eternal perspective. 
And so when I thought to myself, I'm so sad, I'll never see my friend Don. Wait a minute. I will see him again. I will see my grandfathers and my grandmothers. I will see my great fathers, my great grandfathers and my great grandmothers who are in Christ. I, I will see Jonathan Edwards. I will see Augustine. I will see Luther. I will see Spurgeon. But more important than all the rest, I will see my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians four sixteen to 18 reminds us to cultivate this eternal perspective. It says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul the Apostle put it this way. For to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. My family had not been in Legrand for more than a year and a half or two years, and we had purchased a new home, had it built, and had a yard that was just a big pile of dirt. And so we brought in the, the pallets and we put in the grass. And most of you that know me know how, how good I am at yard work. Oh, man, it was so much fun and planting flowers and all the rest. Yeah. And, uh, well, one day we had planted some flowers and um, we were putting down some weed killer to make sure that everything looked good. And Abby was probably about six or seven at that point. I said, now, Abby, be careful. If you eat the weed killer, you'll die. That's, you know, that's, that's just good parenting, right? Eat the weed killer, die. Be careful. And her, her eyes got about this big. She went, oh, well, that means I'd go to heaven. <laughs> well, my six-year-old daughter is a more accomplished theologian than me, right? For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. My daughter at a tender age of seven knew and recognized the principle that Jonathan Edwards taught most of his adult life when he said, Oh God, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. That's what Abby had as a brand new believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you have a fear this morning of death? Does the prospect of losing a loved one in the near future fill you with restlessness or anxiety or hopelessness? Remember this, death is not the end of the road for a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Death is not the final chapter for someone who is trusting Jesus. Death, rather, is just the beginning. The Bible tells us that we have been given victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you hold your finger once again in John chapter 11 and go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51, Paul concludes this chapter, this chapter that is filled with teaching on the resurrection with this great hope. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery, and mark these words, we'll come back to this in a moment. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed 
in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immorality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. And Paul says, But thanks be to God, who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Just a brief footnote for the mat leaders and all of you who will be plugging into ministry in the short days ahead. Verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You see, the hope that Jesus instills in Mary and Martha and each of us prompt us to answer a crucial question this morning. And that question is all important. The question is, where do I stand with God today? If you have refused the free gift of salvation that God offers you through the Lord Jesus Christ, you have no hope. You have no hope. If you refuse to follow Jesus and obey him, your future is a future filled with fiery torment in hell where you will endure the weight of God's wrath for all eternity. And so today, I plead with you, turn to Christ, believe in Christ, follow Christ. Charles Haddon Spurgeon used to say, he said this hundreds of times, fly to Christ. Trust in him, believe in him, turn from your sin, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And when you do so, you can sing with all of God's elect. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean, wholly trust On Jesus' name, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. I love that last verse. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, clothed in righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And you hear this from segments of the church and people all around the world that the Christian life is so drab and so boring. No, no, no. No, no, no. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. But there's a third thing that Jesus does to help these followers of Christ. He teaches them to wait upon the Lord. He teaches them to wait upon the Lord. Go back to John chapter 11. And notice what happens. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 5. Now Jesus, and don't miss this, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place he was. 
Now, I want you to think about this frail faith of Mary and Martha. We kind of we whooped it up. I, I, I built up their faith and talked about how their faith was simple and expectant and, and humble. And these were women who were trusting Jesus. But remember, their faith is frail. When Jesus receives the message, what does he do? Quick, someone get me a donkey. I must go south to the region of Bethany where Lazarus is sick. Now, what does he do? It, it is so counterintuitive, it's almost shocking. He gets the message that his buddy, his friend, the one he loves is ill. And he says to himself, I think we'll wait two more days. Now, remember, in this historical context, no email, no mail. Hate to burst the bubble, but there is no Skype, right? If there were Skype, they could have been communicating back and forth. What happens? Lazarus becomes ill. Mary and Martha find a messenger who makes the at least one day journey to the region in Bethany where Jesus was with the disciples. He finds Jesus. Jesus, Lazarus is sick. Jesus says, we wait two days. Can you imagine Mary and Martha waiting back in the the village of Bethany? Something like this, right? Where is he at? Jesus, where is he? We're trusting you. We're believing in you, but... It's been way, way too long. And from the time the message landed on Jesus' desk, if you will, about Lazarus, to the time when he actually made it there, four days had expired. Here's how it spells out. The messengers go north to find Jesus. That's a day. Jesus waits two more days. Now we're up to three. Am I talking too fast? Then Jesus says, let's go. Let's go south Now we're to four days have expired. And what we realize as we walk through this story is by the time the messenger found Jesus on the first day, now we know Lazarus was already dead. Can you imagine how the faith of Mary and Martha was stretched during these days? They must have wondered why was the Savior taking so long? Kind of like when you and I utter a prayer request. And we say, Lord, help, or Lord, I need finances, or Lord, I need a relationship, or Lord, I need a career. And you wait. And some of you are going, I wish it were two days. Because some of you have been praying for the salvation of a loved one for two years. I've been praying for a friend of mine since I was nine years old. And we wait year after year after year. Here's another principle to run to the bank with this morning. God's timetable. God's timetable is not always in sync with our plans. God's timetable is not always in sync with our plans. You see, Jesus here, as he waits for two additional days, is being submissive to the will of his father. How much more should Mary and Martha wait on the Lord and trust that his plan is the best one? Now, as you might guess, we want to examine the faith of the disciples here and how they are learning to wait on the Lord. And so look at John 11, beginning in verse 7. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. They're going to go south. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, The Jews who are just now seeking to stone you, are you going to go there again? 
And Jesus says, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go to awaken him. And so they have this journey that they must make to the south. It would be about as far as as, uh, walking out of Christ Fellowship this morning and saying, come on, family, we're going to walk to Vancouver, B.C. Like, okay, that's going to take a while. It's going to take at least a day and even more. And so what did the disciples learn here? Along with Mary and Martha, they learn the importance of waiting on the Lord. They learn the importance of waiting on the Lord. One commentator says it like this to explain verses 9 and 10. Jesus' rhetorical question underscores the urgency of his mission. The primary thrust of Jesus' illustration in verses 9 and 10 is to assure his disciples that as long as they are with him, the light of the world, they will be secure from stumbling. The larger implication of Jesus' statement is its original historical context is that people should make the most of the presence of Christ while he is still in their midst, for a time will come when it is too late. And so the disciples, along with Mary and Martha, learn the important lesson of waiting on God and trusting in him to provide their needs and to protect them from all harm. What about you this morning? Have you been waiting on the Lord, content to allow his sovereign plans to come to pass in your life? Perhaps it is your marriage. Perhaps it is a new career. Perhaps it is a dream fulfilled. Without getting into a bunch of nitty-gritty details, I can tell you that I have a dream that relates to my personal ministry, and it was crushed just a few days ago as I received an email. And so as I'm studying this passage, I say to myself, Lord, am I willing to wait? Am I willing to wait for this to come to pass because God's way is the best way. His timing is always the best timing. We must learn to trust in him, rely upon him and wait on God. Probably the most instructive and helpful verse I've ever read in this respect comes in Isaiah chapter 64, verse four, that says from of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No, eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. That is our challenge as Christ followers, to wait upon the living God. Well, there's one more way as we close that Jesus helps the people in this story. And it is a, it is a lesson that not only, <coughs> excuse me, not only weaves through this narrative, this is a lesson that weaves from the beginning to the end of all the Bible. And that is that he reveals his glory. I don't know about you, but that's probably the greatest help I could ever receive for the Savior of the world to reveal his glory. John MacArthur rightly says, the most important theme in the universe is the glory of God. It is the underlying reason for all of God's works from the creation of the world to the redemption of sinners, to the judgment of unbelievers, to the manifestation of his greatness for all eternity in heaven. 260 years ago, Jonathan Edwards uttered these words. What God says in his word naturally leads us to suppose 
that the way in which he makes himself his end in his work or works, which he does for his own sake, is in making his glory his end. And so you ask, how does Jesus reveal his glory in this particular section of Scripture? There are four things I would have you see. First, I want you to see that his glory is seen in his omniscience. His glory is seen in his omniscience. In verse 11, Jesus says, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go to awaken him. And how do the disciples respond? Well, Jesus, if he's asleep, give him a Tylenol and he'll wake up after a while. He'll get better. That's kind of what they thought. And what we learn, however, in verse 14 is something altogether different. Jesus said plainly, Lazarus has By the way, I think it's interesting that he uses the word died. Somewhere in our culture, in particularly American culture, we've picked up this phrase. And some of you have heard me talk about this. He or she passed away. You know who developed that phrase? It was none other than Mary Baker Eddy. Why? Mary Baker Eddy didn't believe in evil. Evil was just a... It was an illusion. And so when someone dies, they don't die, they, they pass away. When our loved ones die, they what? Someone help me. They die. They die. The, the problem of evil is a, is a real bona fide problem. And so Jesus here says, Lazarus has died. It helps us to see that Jesus, when he received the message... Your buddy is sick. He already knew. Why? Because he is the, he is the God-man. Fully God and fully man. He knew that Lazarus was already dead. And so his glory is seen in his divine omniscience. Secondly, his glory is seen in his sovereignty. You see, Jesus is sovereignly in control of every aspect of this story and every story. He is sovereign over sickness. He is sovereign over free agents. He is sovereign over the devil. And he is sovereign over death, as we will see in a few weeks. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it like this. God, the great creator of all things doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free, immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. And you say, whew, that's a mouthful. What do the Puritan divines mean? God is sovereignly in control of all things. Number three, we see his glory as it is revealed in the perfect orchestration of events. We see that all all the things that are happening in this story are according to Jesus' timetable, not the timetable of man. And then finally, and most importantly, I want you to see that his glory is seen as he makes his way to the cross. Each decision moves Jesus closer to the foot of the cross in fulfillment of the Father's plan from all eternity. Now, Jonathan Edwards, when he became the president at Princeton, 
1758, in a few short months, died as he received a smallpox inoculation. The painful death. And the man who took over for Edwards was a man by the name of Samuel Davies. These were the days when Princeton believed the word of God. These were the days when Princeton taught the sovereignty of God. These were the days when Princeton believed the gospel, not like our day today. And the new president at Princeton, Samuel Davies, said this, At the cross, God brings the greatest good out of the greatest evil. At the cross, God pardons and saves the sinner and yet condemns and punishes his sin. At the cross, God gives the brightest display of his justice in the free exercise of his mercy. At the cross, God gives the richest discovery of his mercy in the most rigorous execution of his justice. At the cross, God magnifies his law in justifying those who had broken it. At the cross, God reveals the utmost hatred against sin in showing the highest love to the sinner. At the cross, what an astonishing God do we have here. What a stupendous display of the infinite wisdom. Of God that was shown at the cross. And so Mary and Martha and the disciples are simply helped by God. Jesus strengthens their faith. He he bolsters their hope. He teaches them to wait upon God and he reveals his glory. And as we wrap up, I want you to see this as Jesus helps these people. We really come to the heart of the story here. A heart of the story that reveals the very heart of God. What we find in this story is a Savior who loves his people. He loves Mary. He loves Martha. He loves Lazarus. This is a Savior who not only loves his people, he is thrilled to help his people. This is a Savior who is thrilled to be in relationship with his people. So this morning, each one of us come with a different set of needs. Some of you come with relational needs. Some of you come with physical needs. Some of you are struggling with depression or anxiety or or fear or a panic attack of some kind. Some of you are just lonely. Some of you are a, a prisoner to pride. You're a prisoner to pornography. You're a prisoner to anger. You're a prisoner to, to greed or a prisoner to lust. Know this, Jesus Christ finds great delight in coming to the table and helping you. He loves you. He loves to meet the needs of his people. And so Paul puts it this way. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts. A word that means to umpire. Imagine an umpire making calls, balls and strikes. You're out. You're safe. It guards your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. A need that is common amongst us all and all over the world is this. We all have a need for a Savior. So today, once again, I urge you to cry out to the Savior. Fly to Christ. May each of us be able to say on this day, I have been helped by God. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, um, thank you that 
you are a God who loves to meet the needs of your people. We thank you how you met the needs of people through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the first century. And that ministry continues to this day. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us. Thank you, Jesus, for uh, empowering us by your spirit. I pray for every man and every woman and every boy and every girl today that whatever their need is, that they would bring it to the foot of the cross. Some have need of salvation. Others have need of uh, something, uh, a material need, uh, money or uh, a job or something to think about or consider in the future. Others have relational needs. God, I pray that each person would bring those needs to the foot of the cross and that you would show your kindness, that you would show and demonstrate your mercy and that you would find great delight in meeting the needs of your people and that we would be the beneficiaries, that we would humbly receive the good gifts that you offer. God, may our hearts be right today. May we turn from our sin and, and trust in Jesus, the one who, who loves to meet the needs of his people. For it's in Jesus' worthy name we pray. Amen. My assumption this morning is that we have all come with needs. Are we not a needy people? But I want to challenge you with the needs that you have. Where, where is the first place you turn when a need arises? Let's imagine it's you're seeking wisdom about an important decision to make in the future, and you need help. Some of us will get on the phone to call a friend. Um, we get online. We seek the answer on Google. <laughs> happens all the time. We go everywhere we can imagine to find help for our need but we forget the words of psalm 121 it says i lift my my eyes up to the hills from where does my help come from my help comes from the lord who made heaven and earth and that's the first place we should turn for help in meeting our needs let's pray together great god we love you we thank you for the gospel of your son. Thank you, Jesus, for the needs that you are passionately meeting each day. I pray that you would help us as a church family to get comfortable with turning to you first, to have you seek uh, the needs of our hearts. Remember the words of Augustine, O oh Lord, O oh Lord, you have created us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. May that be true of each man and woman and boy and girl today. May we trust the Lord Jesus Christ as he finds great pleasure in meeting our needs. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a great